Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. All right, everybody, this week we are talking about relaxation. Dog trainers talk about this all the time. Some of them say that dogs can only relax if all their needs are met. Some of them say dogs have to be trained to relax regardless of their needs being met. And a lot of folks fall somewhere in between. So for our purposes, the first thing we have to do, what we always have to do is define relaxation. The actual dictionary definition of relaxation is the act of being free from tension and anxiety. So I'm gonna go back and reference that kind of frequently. It is the act of being free from tension and anxiety. So being free from something doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what is happening. It just tells us about what isn't happening. So. You know, if I were speaking to the people writing the dictionary, I maybe would have pressed them to have a little bit more information here, but free from tension is going to be one thing. Tension is going to be observable and physiological. And then anxiety, not as observable, partially physiological, is about dread. Anxiety is worry about something bad happening. So if I'm relaxed, I am not tense and I am not anxious. I think for us, we can, us being dog people, us being concerned about dog relaxation, we can divide this into kind of three categories. We can divide it into natural relaxation, conditioned relaxation, and maybe learned relaxation. And of course, learned and conditioned, that could mean the same thing. I'm gonna divide it just for our purposes. I'm gonna say that learned, for the dog, learned relaxation is going to be prompted by handler cues and maintained with contrived reinforcements. So food being the most often used one. And then those, those things I'm calling conditioned relaxation are going to be cued by the environment and maintained by the inherent reinforcers at play. So the environment of a nice cushy bed and nothing else much going on and mommy working at the computer is going to cue relaxation that is then reinforced by, oh, isn't it nice to lay on this comfy bed and rest and relax. Natural is going to be the same as conditioned. Difference being the environmental cues don't have to be taught. So for my dogs, the environmental cue of we're in the office, you're on the comfy bed and mom's on the computer has been taught versus a natural cue to relax could be I've just gone on a super long hike and now I got toweled off and put in my crate with a nice comfy bed and there's even a bone in there and that is more natural. Every single thing I'm saying, in fact, every single thing I've said so far, I could have added about 10 caveats to each. So if you're listening to this and you're going, yeah, but like just, it's cool. Just listen to the whole thing (laughs) and then know that I know that there's about 10 different rabbit holes I could go down on every single thing that I've said. I do tend to lean towards 
a wellness perspective and a wellness approach. I think the overarching concern when we're talking relaxation is going to be the dog's overall needs being met. I had someone suggest to me once that the fifth step to behavioral wellness should be rest. And the four steps to recap for anybody who might not know are exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication. And so if I added the fifth step of rest, what would that look like? Or relaxation, what would that look like? And I decided, no, the four steps still stand. And the reason is rest and relaxation will be a product of the other four steps. So if I'm a dog and my exercise needs are met, living a highly enriched life, I'm eating the appropriate food for me in the appropriate amount, and I understand the cues in my environment and the cues coming from my caretakers, then rest and relaxation will be accessible for me. If I were defining the steps to wellness for humans, I probably would put rest and relaxation on the list. And the reason it needs to be on our list and not on theirs is because they don't know anything about capitalism. And so they don't know that they should be hustling all of the time um, the way that we have been conditioned to. So I don't think that dogs need to learn these natural relaxation antecedents. I think that they need their needs met. They need to move their body enough. They need to use their mind enough. They need to be fed appropriately. They need to be given information about the environment in which they live, and therefore they will rest. But it wouldn't be a super helpful podcast for me to end there, and it wouldn't be a super helpful discussion. And I understand why there's pushback whenever I say meet the needs and relaxation will follow. But I think problematically, what a lot of dog trainers mean when they say relaxation is they mean they need the dog to do nothing, even though that's not what the dog would prefer. It means they want the dog to be a house ornament or a lawn ornament. And sometimes it is what you need. Sometimes you do need the dog to chill out and do nothing, even though on that day, they haven't had much for dogs and they haven't had all of their needs met. This can be taught. This falls under that trained category of relaxation, and we are going to return to this. My overarching point being that if the dog's overall needs are not met, you kind of have no right to ask them for this piece. And I do want to clarify something because there's confusion that I've seen on the internet because I've asked social media to tell me what they know about relaxation, and there's confusion on needs being met. Someone saying, I need my dog to lay down and do nothing while I have my coffee in the morning. I need to have coffee and take care of myself before I take care of them. That's not a dog whose needs are not met if their needs were met yesterday and if their needs are met consistently. That's just a dog who isn't tired yet today. And there's a difference between you're tired now and so now you can relax versus overall you can expect to move your body enough and to use your brain enough in your life. And that will make relaxation easier for you. Those are different things. So dogs do require relaxation in the barest definition of being free from tension and anxiety. And in fact, I would hope that most of the hours of their day fall under that category of being free from tension and anxiety. But that is what comes from those four steps to behavioral wellness. 
That is what comes from the dog has been allowed to move its body enough. The dog has been allowed to move its mind enough. The dog has been fed and cared for appropriately and understands the cues that exist in the environment. If those things are present, then relaxation will also be present. And if you would like to argue with me and say, well, I know this dog who has this and this and this, and he still can't relax, I can always find holes in the wellness routine if the dog can't relax. Often they are actual health or medical concerns. So if the dog has a beautiful exercise routine, a fantastically enriched environment and life, really nice positive reinforcement training, a beautiful fresh food diet, but has environmental allergies that are not being treated, relaxation, not gonna be accessible. And that's just one example. So there are some skills that I'm actually gonna actively teach my dogs so that relaxation in those times when yet today their needs have not been met and I need them to relax in those times that will be more accessible to them if they have these skills. Also, when I'm teaching environmental cues, like for instance, I'm at my computer that don't naturally mean anything to dogs. If they have some of these other skills, I can glue those things together. I can help them to understand, to relax in those circumstances. The skills are lie down and have a chew. Chewing is one of the first ways that I help puppies to relax because most puppies like chewing. You have a lot of adult dogs that don't chew anymore. Maybe their teeth don't feel so hot or just chewing hasn't been reinforced in their life for a while. And so it might not be as accessible, but puppies are gonna chew. And so I, it's one of the first things that I do is just lie down and have a chew. If you see me out and about in the world with a young puppy, you will probably see that there's a chewy. When I took Carson to puppy kindergarten class, I brought a chewy for her and a mat for her. And the majority of the class, she was laying on a blanket and chewing around other dogs rather than being active or running around. And that is intentional. Today, I can use a similar circumstance for her to help her to accept things that are maybe hard for her, like, she got scared of some guys with leaf blowers. <laughs> and then the next time guys with leaf blowers showed up in her world, I made sure that she was in one of her kind of relaxation antecedents. She was on a bed, on a tether with a chewy, and she was actually able to lie there and chew. Now, if she wasn't, if she were bolting on the tether, scared, barking, etc., of course, of course I would have intervened. But I was really happy to see that those relaxation skills were accessible to her in that moment. The only true, what I would call relaxation protocol, so separate from Karen Overall's relaxation protocol, but a relaxation protocol that I've created is my happy crating program. Happy crating is all about teaching the dogs to see the crate as a conditioned cue for relaxation. So happy crating is a program that I teach my dogs and it is a relaxation program in the same sense that I can use Chewing to cue relaxation for my dogs, I can use crating. A newer one for me, but one that I am liking more and more is using a tether in the same way that I use crating. So I basically teach the entire happy crating protocol, but also with a tether because it's easy to replicate out and about in the world without hauling a crate everywhere. And then of course, scenting or scent-based enrichment is a calming behavior that I do for a lot of dogs that are in behavior programs with me 
or dogs that are, again, dealing with tough stimuli that I need them to relax through. So this can look like just simply finding food, snuffling through some grass for food. It can be formal tracking or nose work training, but scent-based work is another calming type of behavior or relaxation thing that I'm teaching my dogs. When I wanna pair an environmental cue with one of those relaxation things, I just do simply that. My puppy that's going through a happy crating protocol is in a crate or an X-Pen in my office while I am working until they graduate to a tether and then graduate to freedom. When I take Carson to a group training situation or a dog show, I will plop myself down somewhere with her. She is on a leash, but the leash is ground tied, I'm stepping on it, or it is tied to something else so it is not dynamic and moving around, it feels like a tether, and I give her something to chew on. This is easier for her to do than be told to just be on a downstay in that environment. It's accessible, she can flop down and chew, she is free to get up and move her body and readjust, but it is remarkable to see her choose lying down and chewing and accessing relaxed behaviors in those environments. My adult dogs are all very capable of essentially doing a settle or a casual downstay in a lot of different environments. If I need to get my oil changed or something, I can take them all and sit down and ask them all to lie down and they'll lie down and they'll even fall asleep, they're so relaxed. This all comes back to all of this training and the training starts with first meeting those needs, but specifically the exercise needs. And I want to divide the two, I want to divide exercise needs into two categories. One exercise need is going to be that of actual movement and satiating the dog's need to move their physical body. And that's going to vary a lot by age and by breed. And then it's going to vary by individual. So my eight month old border collie has much, much higher movement needs than my three year old Icelandic sheepdog, although they both have movement needs that need to be met. And then the other category is going to be decompression. So how much dogging in the world are you doing? Sniffing, running around, rolling on stuff, just being a dog out in nature is going to be the other part of the exercise piece for me. Both of them must be met. Both of them must be addressed in order for relaxation to be accessible. Again, I did not say that has to happen every single day before you ask the dog to relax. I'm saying overall that need must be met. Step two, I'm going to provide and teach some cues for relaxation. That's going to be my tether my chewing, my sniffing, or my crating. So those are cues for relaxation that I'm gonna utilize. I will provide a pacifier if necessary. It is best if the pacifier, and this is gonna be something to chew, it is best if the pacifier is not easily or readily consumable. So I don't consider like a snuffle mat a pacifier. I don't consider a chewy that the dog is going to consume quickly, a pacifier. My preference here is gonna be something that the dog could chew on for a very, very long time and not consume or not tire of. The pacifier is not always gonna be necessary and it's not always going to be helpful to you. So that's very individual. 
as I move through this training, kind of teaching the dog to relax, I'm going to make note of when the dog does not fight the relaxation request anymore. You've all seen a young or especially an adolescent dog kind of be put in a situation where they need to relax and they throw a little bit of a tantrum and then they pass out, they fall asleep. So I'm watching for the fighting and I'm watching for the dog fighting the relaxation and I'm watching for that to diminish before I know that I can ask for more. And then finally, I might ask the dog to do this unrestricted. So the crate and the tether are restrictions. That's a kind of basic outline. I'm going to talk to you about Carson specifically within that basic outline in one situation where I need her to relax. And for those that aren't super familiar, Carson is an eight month old Border Collie puppy. She would like to be very busy all day long. She would like to never stop doing anything. But right now I am recording and she is asleep on the couch and she is not restricted and she is only eight months of age. So the progression of this program is going really well for her. And she's absolutely a product of everything that I have learned by doing this in hindsight with my clients and by helping clients who start puppies with me to do it early. So how did I achieve the fact that she read me sitting here recording as a cue for her to go take a nap? looks like this. I make sure that her exercise, her movement and decompression needs are met over time and as an umbrella on kind of an umbrella basis. She has run around outside where we live today, but she has not had any real exercise today and she is still able to access this. But early on, I needed to exercise her a little bit more before I asked her to relax while I worked. And so I would get up earlier and I would take her for a little puppy romp, but also puppies don't need to move as much as adolescents. So it really helped me that I made sure she got exercised, but it was easier to do because she was little. Then I would go ahead and provide the cue or the information. That was the X-Pen at first. She had an X-Pen set up in my office. She had pacifiers in the X-Pen. I call this the puppy palace. So the X-Pen is a big area. It's got a bed, it's got water, but it's also got lots of toys, lots of stuff to chew. It's got a snuffle mat, it's got things in there. And so in order to build this pattern of behavior, I made sure she was exercised. I made sure she understood the cue of going into the X-Pen or the crate. They're basically the same thing. I think the dogs kind of read them as the same thing. The crate is just more restrictive. And so it is harder for dogs to be in long-term. And I don't like dogs to be in crates for hours and hours. And so I, I tend not to use the crate much except for overnight. So I provided the cue of the X-Pen. I provided pacifiers in the X-Pen. And then I noted when she was able to truly relax in the X-Pen. She was learning the cue of the tether in other conditions. And when she would just easily go into the X-Pen, maybe chew a little bit, but mostly sleep when I was working on my computer, I went ahead and took down the X-Pen and graduated her to a tether in this area. She's been tethered off and on when necessary, when maybe her needs are not as met and she is not as able to relax. Again, not to restrict her and give her no choices, but to, although that is happening, but to just have that added cue of remember when you're on this, I need you to relax. And the fact that she hasn't been fighting the tether tells me that she can try not being on the tether and that's why she's lying down asleep right now, not tied and also not behind a gate. 
If she has a particularly hard day, I can always back up. And if she has several hard days, I can always put the X pen back up. So having that kind of tiered approach allows me to back up in the tiers to find what I can find to help her. If I take her into a public space and I need her to relax there, I will bring her something to chew and I will utilize what she understands about the tether by treating her leash like a tether when I sit down. I think it's important for us to talk about a side effect of knowing how to obtain reinforcement is always gonna be relaxation. Dogs that cannot chill out do not know how to access reinforcement in the moment. It's also a side effect of knowing what is and is not available. And this does come back to that fourth step of behavioral wellness, which is communication. My dogs understand the training and fun stuff and me, you know, giving them treats for cues and playing tug or whatever is just not available to them. When I am at my desk working, when I am in the kitchen cooking, when I am doing laundry, like they know those things aren't available because I'm very clear about when those things are available and these look like very different things to them. So when they know what cues lead to which reinforcement opportunities, they are much more able to relax. Dogs that are demand barking at you, screaming in crates, things like that, they are frustrated because they are trying to obtain reinforcement that is not available to them. So to kind of recap, relaxation has some requirements and we do need our dogs to relax for their own health, but also so that we can live with them. One of them is just gonna be those four steps to behavioral wellness. The dog's gotta be well in their physical body in order for you to expect them to relax. But also relaxation is a product of fluency. It's a product of understanding what cues are a green light for what behaviors to obtain reinforcement. And finally, actual self-regulation as a skill, the skill of calming oneself down is something that can be taught via teaching these cues for relaxation of the happy crating, of happy tethering, of laying down and chewing, or choosing to track for food or, or eat a scatter out of the grass instead of pop off at something that they want to pop off on. All of these things go into relaxation being important. And it is not simply your dog can't relax, therefore exercise them more. Although it could be for the individual that we're talking about. I also think it's dangerous for us as professionals to say things like your dog needs relaxation protocols, not more exercise. And the reason that's dangerous is because pet dogs are chronically under-exercised in our world, just like human beings usually are chronically under-exercised in our world. And training something like Karen Overall's relaxation protocol might be a helpful part for a person's process of living with their dog day to day or even working through behavior issues, but it cannot stand alone without that eye for wellness and without that eye for just how much this dog was designed to move its body on a daily basis and how much they need to move their body now. I live with chronic pain. There is no way for my dogs to get a you know three or four mile hike in the woods every single day. I also live too far away from things like that at this point. And so I really focus on quality of exercise and not quantity. And I do try to make sure that they get to move their bodies as much as their bodies want to move within the realm of what is possible for me. I don't hit it out of the park every single day of the week. 
but I do achieve that balance over time for them. And I work very hard to teach them when relaxation or sleeping or rest is going to be the only route for reinforcement for them. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, which is February 13th, 2024, my monthly CogDog Club meeting, which is for both Patreon and my membership, is happening at 5 p.m. Pacific, and we're going to do an Ask Me Anything on this topic. The links to join, of course, are in the show notes. I hope to see you there. And some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Diane. Diane writes, Tonight, our five-year-old intact Parson Russell Terrier became aggressive towards my partner when they approached me to show me something on their phone. We have had him since he was a puppy, and they sometimes play rough, but this was different. I was able to grab him by the collar and calm him. He went to his kennel as directed and stayed quietly until my partner let him out about an hour later. He was his playful self, like a switch turned off. How can we prevent this behavior from reoccurring? So Diane, you can't prevent it from reoccurring if you don't know kind of what sparked it. This sounds like a guarding of you against the partner thing. Like that would be my guess as to what that was. If you've never seen anything like that before, then I would be just very aware going forward that it could happen again in a similar circumstance. I tend not to get too excited over one incident, although this one sounds pretty bad. So you could get excited. And what excited means in this context is get a full workup done. The dog is five. And so big behavior changes at that kind of age are basically always a health concern. The exception is it's possible that this behavior has been building for a long time and you didn't see more subtle signs. And so it was just an escalation um, of something that has been going on. But you know, you listen to this podcast, you probably are paying pretty nice attention to this dog's behavior. I would encourage that workup if the dog hasn't seen a veterinarian. Recently, a physical exam, blood work, you know, that kind of thing, never a bad place to begin. And then pay attention to these similar circumstances, especially if you are somewhere with the dog and the partner is approaching. I would not freak out, grab the dog, anything. I would just kind of have everybody slow down, watch the dog, watch for changes in behavior, those sorts of things. And if it does happen again or escalate, you need some help. You need a dog behavior consultant. You might need a veterinary behaviorist. It's not something that I can, you know, give you, rattle off a two sentence answer and have you fix that problem. So I'm sorry that happened. I know that's really scary. Get in for that workup and maybe look for some help. Next one is from Haley. Haley writes, I've had some difficulty imagining myself making getting in the car a no choice option for my eight month old Great Dane puppy. Overall, I'm impressed with the with his behavior, but he absolutely has his adolescent moments. I think there are two reasons why he doesn't like getting in the car. One, he doesn't want the fun to end. And two, it's awkward for him to step in the car. We have a ramp and a stool, but he still has trouble figuring out where to put his feet and doesn't want to fall or hit his head on the roof. I've tried treats, toys, targeting, and walks, which are hard when it's 14 degrees, jumping in the car myself and calling him through the open door on the other side of the car. I've had Great Danes my whole life and I know we'll work it out, but do you have any tips to help us speed up our progress? So first of all, Haley, let me define no choice versus choice for everybody kind of listening here. 
A no choice scenario is going to be one in which I'm not asking the dog to do anything. I'm not asking them to use behaviors that I've taught them with classic reinforcers like food or toys. I'm just sort of making the thing happen. It isn't about I tell you to get in the car verbally and you understand you don't have a choice. That's never actually what this is about. It's about the fact that I say we're getting in the car and I can say that with my body language. I don't need to say that with words. And then I make sure that you do get in the car and that that's the outcome. If I wanna get geeky about it, a no choice scenario is gonna be a negative reinforcement contingency and a choice scenario is gonna be a positive reinforcement contingency. So if you're trying to use food or toys or even praise to get the dog in, to reward the dog for getting in the car, you are solidly in a choice contingency. And if you confuse the two, you will create more stress. If it is about the dog not wanting the fun to be over, that's where you wanna put the dog in the car more often and take the dog to fun places and make sure the dog has a nice, big, enriched life. I think it's more likely, because it's an eight-month-old Great Dane, that this is a physically awkward thing for this dog to do, and you're gonna physically need to help him. So I would get him really comfortable with physically having the front end of his body placed in the car by you, and then the second end <laughs> of his body being placed in the car by you. And then you can give him a nice food scatter once he gets in there. It just, that is different from asking him to load up and then feeding him when he does so of his own accord. So some sort of physical manipulation of getting the dog into the car is actually something I would work on and work through. And if he is uncomfortable with it, I'd be working on it other places. Put him on the couch like that. Pick up his front feet, put them on the couch, praise him, pet him, tell him he's so good, and then pick up his back feet and load the rest of his body onto the couch and then do a food scatter once he got on the couch. So you could do that with a bed, you could do that with a bench outside, kind of practicing doing those things. You can, of course, train this to be a choice procedure, but you need to do it outside of the context of actually needing the dog to get in the car. And that's where I would set up a really stable platform that's easy for the dog to hop on that you are going to use consistently to help him load into the car. And I would just shape him with food to hop on and hop off and hop on and then in the car and then out and off. That's about what I can do for you as far as this Patreon question goes. This is a behavior problem when it's a behavior problem, which I don't think you have right now that I've helped a lot of people work through. But really delineating that choice versus no choice situation is one important thing to do. And then also helping him be comfortable with the no choice situation is also important. Next one is from Connor. Connor writes, what are your thoughts on increasing difficulty in cued behaviors? Looking at duration behaviors specifically, there seem to be two popular schools of thought, alternating between a new level of difficulty and an earlier level, or gradually increasing difficulty like the 300 peck method, which is a method in which you first start with one second or one step, etc., and each repetition adds on one more. Uh, failure of behavior starts back at one. So you guys can Google 300 peck method if you're a little confused about that. Back to Connor. Do you use either, neither, both? So you're at, the first question, what are your thoughts on increasing difficulty in cued behaviors is different from how do I increase duration? So I'm going to answer the duration question. If you still have the other question, you can come back and post it. So the duration question, I build duration by volleying. 
I have not had success personally with a more 300 peck style, just build, build, build procedure. Although I understand it and I understand why it could work, I just volley the difficulty and I'm always watching for the pre-errors to know if I am pushing too hard. So the pre-errors are going to be, did the dog fidget? Did the dog lift an elbow to take the food that I brought over to him? Things like that. So I'm going to volley between easy and hard and I'm going to watch for pre-errors. Last one this week comes from Aaron. Aaron writes, how do you address over arousal around food? My five-year-old Aussie is completely food obsessed and becomes over aroused when food is present. Unable to settle demand barks or healing and muzzle punching hands if moving on a walk to whomever has food. We have worked in several different ways to try to address this without luck. One way is Karen Overall's relaxation protocol to develop healthy mat skills to transfer to the skill. If food is not present, he is great. He will settle at bars even if other tables have food and will run and play with other dogs or engage with the environment. He's very Velcro and has a great recall, so I'm not concerned with withholding food when I'm alone so he can enjoy the activity, but I would like to work toward a clear brain when food comes out from me since I have two other dogs to reward or if others with need to use food for their dogs. So Aaron, I'm going to clarify the question in my mind, and then if I am wrong, come back and post a new question. So the question is, that when you are feeding this dog, so when when the dog becomes aware that there is a food contingency that is in relation to you or potentially your friends who are there with their dogs, now the dog's behavior becomes unsustainable for you. So the dog can't just kind of enjoy the environment, sniff around. The dog might demand bark and might muzzle punch at you. So we've got some behaviors present when the dog learns or when the dog becomes aware of a food contingency kind of being put on the table. So there's a couple of different things. First, I want you to think about it from a health standpoint. A lot of dogs that have a really unhealthy fixation on food are unwell in some way. Sometimes they are just plain underfed. And I am not saying that your dog is being starved because number one, I have not put hands on this dog and would not make that assumption. But sometimes underfed just means that the dog really needs several meals a day rather than one. It might mean that the dog needs more carbs and you're feeding a raw meat-based diet that doesn't have any carbs. It could, it could mean so many different things. And again, those are not, that's not advice. That's for you to think about. I would also make sure the dog's had blood work, make sure the dog is healthy, make sure the vet thinks the dog is healthy. Because I do find sometimes that these dogs that are just unreasonably voracious can have a problem. Now, not always. You mentioned it's an Aussie. A lot of Aussies are really hungry. And in which case, I would do a couple of different things. One is that I would feed the dog a meal before I went out and expected the dog to kind of cope with food rewards being present. Two is that I would use food that is kind of in big chunks and I would lean towards using food that is kind of boring. So think like a big cracker, not a piece of cheese <laughs> sort of thing. And I'm not saying actually give the dog crackers, but I, I think you kind of understand. Maybe a milk bone or something, you know, classic like that versus little tiny pieces of cheese or meat. So that's kind of one thing to think about. But the other is just going to be clarity, clarity around food, 
If he is muzzle punching at you and demand barking at you, he does not understand how to access the food and the food is more important to him than anything else in the environment. In which case, like you mentioned, you could make sure that you're not reinforcing any of those behaviors. Like I would mark and feed him when he's off sniffing. I would make sure that when he's paying attention to the environment is when he gets marked and fed rather than ever fed for paying attention to you, even if he isn't muzzle punching or whatever in those environments, I wouldn't be feeding him for paying attention to you. So it's really thinking about how can I get this dog the reinforcement he wants? And how can I build the behaviors I want by doing so? So I would also not be feeding from your hand in those situations. I would be doing big group scatters out in the grass, things like that. Aaron, I hope that that was helpful. I know that that's kind of a lot of information and not a clear cut plan because it's just Patreon, but I do think you've got some pieces to work with. And that's all for this week. Thank you all for your questions. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.